In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Amen. Is it the movie or the book? Which do you prefer, the movie or the book? Like Harry Potter, Harry Potter movies came out, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, Garfield. I think we all wondered about that as well. And these are the kinds of questions we'll ask when, when a, a great work of literature has a movie made about it. And, of course, people who read the books almost always defend the books. People of the films defend the films. But there is something that that medium of film and TV does that a book can rarely pull off, and that is uh, the same story from different camera angles. Uh, I've experienced this certainly in movies, same scene, different angles on that scene gives you different perspective, but you also experience it watching American sports. And I have an avid lover of sports. I love to play sports. I do enjoy watching sports as well. And for whatever reason, in American sports, they like to use lots of cameras, arguably too many cameras. Like if you watch a game, for instance, American football, they'll have uh, cameras all along the field. They'll sometimes have cameras on the helmets. And you can just see the action sort of from a player's perspective but there also will be, 1,500 feet in the air, they'll put a, a camera on a blimp, all right, a, an aerial ship, so that you can get a full view of everything, not just the, the field and the stadium, but the parking lot, the events surrounding the sporting event. If, if, it's, a, if it's a golfing match, you can see the whole golf course. So you get an idea of the whole production of what's going into this major event from start to finish. Well, God occasionally does the same thing in the Bible. He tells the same story, but from different angles. I'll just call it heaven cam and earth cam. All right, and we first see this actually at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. You get the story of creation from both heaven cam and earth cam. So Genesis chapter 1, we get this poetic song of light and darkness. You get the forming of the cosmos, the gathering of the waters, the essence of humanity, and we're told all of this from heaven's perspective. Let us make man in our image. And so you're seeing this from heaven, Genesis chapter 1. And then all of a sudden, the camera angle switches. Genesis chapter 2, camera 2. We get details about Adam and Eve, what their digs look like, what, what tending a garden looked like for them, garden responsibilities, the day-to-day stuff. We have a similar thing going on here in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 of Paul's letter the church of Ephesus. We have 
Heaven cam and earth cam, two different perspectives of God's grace and how it changes people's lives. We get the perspective from heaven and the perspective from earth. So Ephesians 1 is heaven cam. Paul celebrates God's plan before the foundation of the world to rescue people like you and me. And he tells us about the Father's role in adopting us. He tells us about God the Son's role in redeeming us. And then he tells us about God the Holy Spirit's role in applying that redemption to our lives so individuals can be saved. Then he, Paul prays that we can grasp this great and infinite and cosmos-like salvation in our own lives, that we can grasp it, reminding us all the while that Jesus loves us and wants to use us even as he reigns in heaven. Again, the heaven cam perspective. Then we get Ephesians chapter 2, earth cam. All right, like the body camera people wear. It's not new information, but grace as we experience it changing, recreating our lives and our relationships. So Ephesians 2 helps us view lives through the lens of, a, of like a body camera as each of us walks down the path of life. And in fact, those are the words, that's kind of the vocabulary Paul actually introduces, introduces in Ephesians chapter 2, walking down the path as, we, as Kirsten read for us, walking down the path or the course of life. Walk is an important word. Peripateo is the Greek word translated here as walk. Peripateo is a very important word in the Roman world. Everywhere you went, you would walk. Walking then defined you. You demonstrated where you worked, where you lived, where you went after hours, who you went to hang out with. All these things, unless you were super wealthy, you did by walking. And so where you walked defined you. It was who you were. And so for that reason, this word peripateo, translated as walk, can also be translated as live, or how you conduct oneself. Because how you walked showed people, this is how I live. This is how I define myself. So seven times in Paul's letter, he'll use this term, walk, 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 walk. And he introduces it here in chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, you see. So Paul envisions his life as a walk down a path. And that's why I have a path up here today. All right, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. He envisions all of life as a path down which each of us walks. And the ultimate question worth asking is, in what direction do I walk? Because that determines everything for us. Life, our ultimate destiny, our relationship with God. So it's no exaggeration to say the answer to this question ultimately defines you. In what direction do I walk? So here is the path of life as we experience it, as we'll talk about it this morning. Everyone starts down the path of the walking dead. There's the possibility of 180 degree turn. And finally, the possibility of the walking work. That's what we'll talk about this morning. The walking dead, the 180-degree turn, and, of course, something I call the walking work. Let's pray together as we get started in God's Word. Father, we thank you through this morning. We pray with the psalmist that you would um, open our eyes, that we might behold the wonderful things in your law. Please help open our eyes today, that we might understand who we are and whose we are and whose we could be in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting here with the walking dead, all right, that's the first direction of our lives for every person here. I've never actually seen this TV show before, 
but it's, been, it's very popular. It's a, apparently a show, I've never seen it, but it's a show about the zombie apocalypse. People are trying to survive the zombie apocalypse, and it sounds like a strange premise. I can explain this partly as I've said the fact that Americans, for some reason, love zombies. Almost as much as they love bacon. All right, they love, they love zombies. Zombies were, were people who are once human. They have some pathogen or virus, depending on what the storyline is. Once humans, they still walk like humans. They have some resemblance of humanity, but they are, in fact, dead. And they can make you dead, too. And the people who are still alive, truly alive, they both, they both you know, fight the zombies, they flee from the zombies, depending on what the situation calls for, because they don't want to be numbered among the living dead. And from what I gather, the appeal to the show, in part, is it's supposed to listen and us, like, what if, what if this was true? What if the walking dead really populated the world? How would I respond? Would I respond like these people if this was the reality? walking to populated the world. And the Apostle Paul is saying in our passage today, in effect, it is happening. The world is populated primarily by people who think they are free, who think they are alive, but they are, in fact, dead. Dead. E- even as they walk, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul goes further and says that the walking dead, a walking death, is part of all of our stories. Verse 3, we, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. None of us is excluded. This is part of all of our stories at one point or another, and possibly now. So I want to unpack this a little bit. What does Paul mean by dead? He means that we start life spiritually dead. We start life, number one, dead in our ability to love God and love our neighbor as we ought. And number two, relationally dead to God. We're dead in our ability to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor and ourselves. It's the, the two biggest requirements God has of us. We're dead. Theologians call this the doctrine of inability. We can't on our own love God the way we should, love our neighbor as we should. We can't. We're spiritually dead. And because we don't do the things God requires of us, we're relationally dead to God because he can't be around sin, being a perfect being. The worst part about all of this, that sounds bad enough, right? The worst part is that we don't really notice what's wrong with us. We just think as we walk in life that we're conforming to societal norms and the way we live. And that we're free. We're free to do what we want. We're living as free individual beings. And Paul says, no, you are or you were following the course of this world, right? That's what he says here. You're following the course of this world, which isn't neutral. In this world, there is a built-in hostility to authority generally and to God specifically. In institutions, in economic systems, in media in groups of people, and all of us in general, this is built-in hostility. I want to live life my own way. I don't want someone telling me how to live my life and what to do. But we just think it's normal, and we just think we're free, but we're not. You're actually following, and this, is, this breaks my heart and simultaneously makes me mad. We are following, unbeknownst to us, a different ruler altogether, the prince of the power of the air, this, this spirit who's now at work in those who disobey God. Prince of the power of the air, the spirit, 
Spirit, which can be translated as wind. Both are meant to conjure up this picture of invisibility. We don't even know it's happening to us. It's just air to us. It's just, it's just wind. We can't even tell. We think we're making free decisions to live the life we want to, expressing our life, expressing our individuality. But we're slaves. And so if I could bring these images together, the total, pic- pic- sorry, the total picture seems to be we're walking down this path, this, this smooth, gentle path path the world says is good to walk on, it's natural to walk on, and all the while there, there's even a breeze at our back. We'll call it a gentle wind at our back. And so all the way we think that life is normal, not realizing it's a path of worldly hostility, not realizing that Satan himself is urging us along this downhill, downwind path. We walk into our trespasses and sins. So it seems so natural to love temporary pleasures more than God, right? And so we just walk this way because that's what everyone does. That's the course of this world. And so we walk into our trespasses, don't we? It's natural. And we walk naturally into loving our children more than we love God. And, and who wouldn't say that, right? Like when you meet someone, they say, family is number one in my life. And we think, way to go, right? It's normal. It's natural. But no, that, that's idolatry. We love something else more than we love God. He is supposed to be our number one. And so we walk into these things thinking they're just normal. But what about success? Everyone wants to achieve success in life. Man, I'm just focused on, on being successful at my job. I'm focused on successful in my studies, successful in being a spouse. And that's my number one focus right now. Well, that's not bad, is it? Again, if you love that more than God, it is. And this is the way Satan wants us to follow. We just naturally walk into these good works, not knowing that we're not free and that we do evil. Because unbeknownst to us, our, our, our walking partner, the person with whom we're walking, is the prince of the power of the air. He, he, he tricks us to think that we are free. He even urges us to do things that are, seem good and are good, but do them for the wrong reasons, often to serve self or to pat ourselves on the back or to feel self-satisfied. And in 15 years, guys, of pastoral ministry, one of the, the saddest phenomenon I've witnessed is people who decide to commit their lives to Jesus, to trust Jesus, say, I'm going to become a Christian only for the perks. He'll give me peace. He'll save me from my troubles. He'll help my marriage. But never acknowledge the depth of their rebellion. Some of us, when we, when we read, let's face it, we read this phrase. Read it with me again. We were by nature children of wrath. You see that in verse 3? Many of us think, yeah, but that's, that's Paul's story. Like, Paul was a child of wrath. Or, or, or maybe may, it might be Ryan's story. Not really my story. Because at first we don't see it. We, we don't see how demanding my rights in life leads to self-centeredness. We can't see how starting to find satisfaction and credit I receive for being a good person, I start to be satisfied. That leads to this sense of self-satisfaction, patting ourselves on the back. We can't see how being a good person and living to show yourself as a good person leads to a sense of superiority and looking down on others for not being like you. It's so hard to see this. And so what we end up doing, those who commit themselves to Jesus, oftentimes Jesus becomes our peace giver. He becomes our marriage builder, but not our savior. Dr. Uh, M. Scott Peck, he's an accomplished psychiatrist, but not yet a Christian. 
after trusting his life to Jesus Christ, he admitted that when sitting with all people of different sorts, he could sense sometimes subtle, sometimes obvious evil at work in their lives and their motives even. But, but he didn't have a name for it. He said, I felt their evil, but had no vocabulary for it. He said his supervisors couldn't help them with what he was facing. They were trained to be psychiatrists, he said, not priests. And so I didn't know what I was dealing with it. I didn't have vocabulary for what I saw in people, both subtly and obviously. And it's interesting because Paul talks about, he actually tells the pastor of this church in Ephesus in a different letter, he says, some sins are real obvious, right? Some sins, loving temporary pleasures more than God, obvious. Some sins are non-obvious, inconspicuous. Scott Pecky noticed this in people, didn't have vocabulary for it. Didn't know how to, how to deal with it as a trained and successful psychiatrist in his life. But this is where Paul gives us a vocabulary for even the subtlest of evil. He says that every person starts among the walking dead. We are deceived into thinking that we are free when we are not. And until we acknowledge that we've deliberately walked away from God in our lives, we've taken the easy road, walked this way, turned a blind eye to God, we won't get to enjoy Delight in, relish the first two words of verse 4 of what Paul says here. But God. We're walking this way. We're dead. We're among the walking. We're deceived. But God. This is the 180 degree turn of life. And, And two of the greatest words in the Bible and in your life, I hope, is but God. And if you don't feel if you don't sense to the depths of your soul how, how good those two words are, but God, then I want to suggest you haven't yet seen the depth of your sin. You haven't seen the depth of your rebellion, of how bad it really is. Unless you can say, yes, but God, hallelujah. So I pray that you would see that if you don't feel that. So Paul says, but God, well, what did God do? He saved us from deserved death and turned us to life with Christ. How did God turn our lives around? By uniting us with Jesus, quite simply. He gave us a new companion, a a Savior, with whom to walk. Paul's whole point is that it's only with Jesus that people can turn to God. That people can turn around and walk with God. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ. Notice the whole theme here. It's only with Jesus. By being with Jesus, walking with Jesus, we get what Jesus got. By his blood, Jesus got life forever. By his blood, Jesus got raised. By his blood, Jesus got to sit at the right hand of the Father, near to him. And by grace, we can get what Jesus got. When I was a teenager growing up in, uh, near Los Angeles, t- California, uh, I, I got, at times, uh, obsessed with different things. Uh, and there were lots of things I got obsessed with and, and, and sort of conspired to be a part of. One of which was I really liked the, uh, really the TV show Seinfeld in the 90s. Big fan of the show. And I know a lot of you, I met a lot of you South African friends of mine, don't understand the show Seinfeld. You've, you've expressed this very, very vocally to me before. I don't understand how it's funny. I, look, I get it. It's uh, in some ways a very shallow show. It's literally a show about nothing. But uh, anyhow, I, so I wanted to go to a taping. I heard that it was taped. In, I thought it was taped in New York. I found out it was taped in, you know, it's taped in Hollywood. 
So I wanted to get, go to the taping. I researched online, tried getting on waiting lists, even tried calling the studios. I actually thought about going outside the studio and like waiting somehow with some friends of mine, and we were going to go and do that. didn't happen. One October evening, some neighbors of mine bought tickets to Seinfeld through a charity auction. Apparently, you couldn't get tickets otherwise unless you had like connections, you were an agent to someone, some, some Hollywood star, etc. But through a charity auction, they, got, they purchased tickets to Seinfeld, and they got to have a plus two with them. So they called me and said, hey, Ryan, we have four tickets to a taping of Seinfeld. It was the last season. It was glorious. They said, guess what? You're coming with us. I was like, no way. They're like, yes, you get what we got, right? You get what we have. So under the name of George and Heidi Andrews, uh, with lanyards around me that said Andrews on it, uh, I got to go early and meet the actors who played Jerry's parents. It was a wonderful experience. I, I got to sit on, on the sofa and look at all the stuff in Jerry's apartment. I got to sit in um, Tom's restaurant, right, at the diner where they eat together and all those sorts of things. My friends, I take pictures, like just tons of fun, sort of all access sort of deal, all because all along the way it was like, are you with the Andrews? Are you with the Andrews? Yes, here's my lanyard. I'm with the Andrews party. That was my only access to enjoy all these privileges. Life forever. The, the, ability, the ability to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to, the, to be near to the Father. We have access to the thing, these things only because we're with Jesus. It's only because of Jesus. We get what Jesus got. He purchased it. He got it. And now we get it because of Jesus. And Paul, to make this point even more obvious, more clear, just comes out and states it very bluntly that it's only because of Jesus. Verses 8 and 9, he says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. There is an intervention in the lives of believers, people who have trusted Jesus. There's an intervention of God's love for you through Jesus Christ that turns your life around. And the only thing God asks of us is to trust that it's true. It's to trust that God would love us this much. It's to trust that Jesus would die for us to prove that love. Raised from the dead to bring us with him for life forever. All we have to do is trust that it's true. By grace, through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast. Why does Paul say this at the end, not by works and all boast? Because what will happen is, even as God turns you around and you start to walk with him, you'll sometimes look back and think, yeah, now I see that I kind of deserve this. I see that now that God saw some potential in me, and that's why he turned my life around. That's the subtlety and the deception of the human heart. Or we look forward and think, wait a minute, before I go in this direction and walk with God, I need to clean my life up. I need to do something to be worthy of this. There needs to be something in me that makes me worthy to God, deserving of God. That's the human heart also. It tries to say, I can get to God by what I do. And that's just religion, friends, not a relationship. Not by works. And praise God that it isn't. Imagine if we walked with God, and we were favored by God, accepted by God because of our works, what would every day look like? For me, it'd be some days I'd feel great with God. Like, man, this was a great day. Other days, completely down and wondering if God ever loved me in the first place. Such is the volatility of our lives. We would never know 
We would never be assured if we were truly accepted. I remember when Pope Benedict XVI died, and his successor, Pope Francis, asked believers to pray him into heaven. He asked the faithful to pray him into heaven. And I was thinking when I heard this, if the Pope doesn't have assurance of heaven already, who does, right? He, like the one Pope's asking the believers, we don't, we're not sure the Pope's in heaven. Let's pray he gets into heaven. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I, what's this going to be like for me? And that's because that, and I was, went to Catholic school for many years. The, the largest Christian denomination, almost 50%, teaches that salvation, turning around and knowing God forever, is achieved by both trusting Jesus and the good works you do. Yes, it's important to trust Jesus, but if you really want to know God, if you want to really be assured, you've got to do good works and good works. So it, it's, it's, an, it's an equation. Trust God plus your good works, then you know you can be saved. And that is not what Paul teaches here. But back to the visual. Our, our, we start in life with our walking partner, once Satan himself. Gradually lead us down this path of walking in sin, both obvious and non-obvious sin. But God, with the great love with which, with which he loved us, he turned us around, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we're saved. And we start to walk with Christ. Because we're alive with Christ resurrected with Christ, seated with Christ. And as we walk with Jesus, we actually walk into good works. That's what verse 10 teaches us here. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is beautiful. First of all, let me tell you about this wonderful word, workmanship. It's translated from the Greek word poema, from which we get the English word poem. We are his workmanship. We are God's poem. That means upon trusting Jesus, God not only turns our life around, but he transforms our life, recreates our life into a beautiful work of art. A beautiful work of art. And that sounds cliche, I know, to say that, but it's true. Paul continues, let's continue there, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created in Jesus. We are created to be a work that the world hasn't seen in millennia. You see, long ago, God created, and this would be the same Greek word if you were to transliterate it in the Old Testament, whatever. Long ago, God created man in his image, and he placed man in a garden, and he told man to work that garden. Before, before sin came into the world, I want you to freely work and create and, and just be an artist because you are a work of art. Before there was the frustration and pain and misunderstanding, you could do good work. And man did work in the garden. And as he did work in the garden, God would walk with man during the cool of the day. Pretty amazing. And just for a moment, Paul is using language here that that transports us back to creation to say something profound, that Christians are recreated to walk again with God in the good work of his garden. We're recreated to walk again with God in the good work of his garden. His garden now, and the world we currently live in, is a messed up place. But he recreates us so we can walk in it. So we can populate it with good works. So we can refresh the world we live in. So to do good works, you don't have to make a long list of tasks. You can, but you don't have to join Rotary. You can, but you don't have to move to Africa or Haiti because the world 
outside your doorstep. It's his garden, created to have good work done at it. As we step outside, God has prepared good works along the way that we might naturally walk in them as we walk. I want to call your attention to remember for a moment what it's like to walk with someone you really enjoyed. Maybe you ever dated someone. Maybe it was the person you dated. Maybe that person you, you dated is now your spouse. Maybe all of us had some experience. It could be a friend, whatever it might be. You remember walking with them and how wonderful it was, especially at the beginning, right? You, you walked into a restaurant together. And it did something with your heart, didn't it? Because you were walking with that right person. And so at the restaurant, you tended to tip more generously, right? Your waitress, because you just wanted to be generous around that person. And so you, you walked into that, right? Or when you're walking along the street, you more, more readily noticed a person's need, someone who was struggling, and, and, you, and you were compassionate to them. You, you, you maybe gave them something or helped them out with something or walked them across the street, and so you, you did a compassionate deed because you're walking with someone you love, right? It just becomes natural as we walk in with Jesus, we walk into good works, right? You, you share a smile because you're with the person you love. Maybe even you, you share good news with someone. It's natural because we're walking with the person we love. And that's what it's like being a Christian. It's not making a laundry list of good works you're supposed to do. It's not necessarily selling everything you have to make sure God accepts you forever and to make sure others are taken care of. We think when we walked with that person, man, this person makes me feel alive. Remember when we walked with them the first time? This person just makes me feel alive. Friends, God has made you alive with Christ, and you get to walk in life with him, through life with him. As you do so, it becomes more natural to walk smack dab in the works God has prepared beforehand for you to do. Not to earn favor with God, but as a response to his love for you, as a response to his joining you in companionship and love in the walk of life. You just want to. A fellow pastor named Michael, when he was still in seminary, he was taking a course in clinical pastoral education. It's a, it's a fancy name for a course. It's what people do at seminary. That's why you pay the big bucks uh, for classes that name named like that. At each seminary, a seminarian was assigned to be a chaplain at a hospital um, in the area and would be on call at least once a week to visit that hospital, uh, visit the sick there for emergencies. And late one night, Michael's phone rang, and he was called down to the hospital. A 16-year-old girl had been driving late at night with friends. She, had, she backed into a light pole. Uh, that pole, which was apparently old and kind of rickety, uh, broke off and fell on, crashed into her car. A 12-year-old friend in the car was severely injured. Um, it, it partially crushed her skull. And upon arriving at the hospital, that 12-year-old girl was pronounced brain dead. Michael was tasked with walking with uh, the parents of the, the 12-year-old. That, that anguishing moments, gut-wrenching moments of, of process of accepting reality and, and, and allowing the life support to be removed from their daughter. And the following morning, Michael went back to the hospital. The 16-year-old girl was still there. She had some minor injuries enough to keep her overnight, but she was physically doing better, but emotionally she was a wreck, as you could understand. Blaming herself 
recognizing that her actions caused the death of her friend. And so she resolved. She told Michael, I, here's what I'm going to do. She finally got the courage to say, you know, I, I'm going to be like a daughter to her parents. This is my plan. I'm going to be like a daughter to her parents. I'm going to go to their house every day. I'm going to babysit for them. I'm going to, I'm going to mow their lawn. I'm going to do their dishes. I'm going to go to mow their lawn once a week. And she had this, this plan prepared, and, and Michael tried to, to gently counsel her and, and share with her that, that no matter what she did, she could never replace their daughter, 12-year-old daughter. N- nothing she could do could ever make up for her actions, nothing. All she could do was ask for forgiveness and trust that, that those parents would reach out to her and forgive her. And remarkably, they did. She asked for forgiveness. They, they, they reached out to her. They forgave her. They set her free from trying to pay back a debt that she could never repay no matter what she did. And as that, as that just sunk into her life, it recreated her. So, so what do you think she did anyway? She joyfully visited their house. She freely babysat for them. She voluntarily mowed their lawn once a week. She happily tried to become like a daughter to them. Because that is what grace can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for for Jesus. Jesus who alone can turn our lives around from, from the the path of certain death, from, from a relational status of, of deserved judgment and wrath. Thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray this morning for those who don't net know you, Jesus, as their Savior. I pray that they would see the desperate state of following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. They would see that they need God's intervention in their lives. Father, I also pray for those of us here who've recently began trusting Jesus, that they might praise you for the work in their lives and share that work with others, that they would see what has happened to them in salvation, that they were walking one direction, they, they were turned around 180 degrees, and now they, they love following you, and they love doing good work simply because they get to walk with you, Jesus. So Father, I pray for the, that we would share that all of us with others. And for the rest of us, I pray that you would help us keep walking with you, Jesus, and enjoy you, delight in you, so that we naturally rejoice and walk in the good works which you've prepared for us beforehand, that we might walk in them. And Father, finally, I just pray that amidst the, the messiness, the frustration, the nastiness of sin in the garden of your world, that we may see that we are recreated persons, like a poem that we can offer a different way of looking at what it means to really live. People would see our lives and they would see a work of art, that they would look through our lives and see that's different and that they would want that too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.